Well, I'm going to share something with you this morning from a guy named Brandon Meeks. And as soon as I start reading this description of this place, within just a few minutes, every one of you will know exactly where I'm talking about. So listen to what Brandon says. He says, A fistful of black letters flicker atop the pale yellow background. The sign is broken, but few care, because they are also broken. There is a place like God and grandmother's house where the door is always open. You may find better food elsewhere, but you won't find better food for the money. They have a menu, though I've never needed it. When you sit down at the table or the bar, you will likely be greeted by someone who calls you honey, sugar, baby, or maybe even boss. But you will be greeted, and usually with a smile, and by someone who knows what it means to work hard and long for very little. Some of them are working their way through college. Some of them are single parents trying to pay the rent and keep the lights on at home. Some are ex-cons trying to hold down a job by wiping tables and desperately trying to believe the rumors of second chances. On any given day, there might be a family of five seated near you with three small children scarfing down jelly toast and scrambled eggs. And they're here because the food is cheap and sometimes dad doesn't want mom to have to cook after working 12 hours at the factory. On one side of you will be three bikers and a war veteran swapping stories. On the other side will be an elderly couple who come every Tuesday night. They come just to hear voices. Their own kids have long since stopped visiting and they've already buried all of their other friends. It doesn't matter what you've done or where you've come from, you are welcome here. Straight-laced or strung out, drunk or sober, or in that fuzzy place in between. In blue jeans, a business suit, or pajamas, no one is ever turned away. Y'all know where I'm talking about? So the Waffle House may not be church, But many of our churches could stand to learn a few things about open arms and second chances from the Waffle House, couldn't they? So over the last few weeks, I've been doing a series called Blind Spot. And today I want to finish up on this series looking at us as a church and maybe our blind spots that we have as people in the church sometimes. And I think we all have blind spots. We've been going through people in the Bible who had blind spots because they, just like us, are human, and they had blind spots, and they had to try to, when they recognized those blind spots, do something different in their lives. And so I asked some questions about who and what the church is about. Do we have some blind spots about that, maybe? Have we possibly Americanized or Westernized the church? Are we using a, a business or corporate or capitalist model to run the church like a business or something? Or have we made it into some sort of a club or organization of sorts? Are we be, being true to the church that was established in the book of Acts? Is Jesus happy are pleased with his bride, the church, in the 21st century. Now, I say the bride because in the New Testament, Paul talks about the bride of Christ being the church. And that's where that language comes from. So is Jesus pleased worldwide, not just here at Southwest, but pleased Southwest? Those are hard questions not only to ask, but probably even harder to answer sometimes, isn't it, when we look at ourselves. But what we do know is, is that 20 centuries later, despite our blind spots and in spite of our behaviors and our actions and our inaction over all of history in the church, 
People are still coming to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior, and their lives are being transformed. We can't mess it up, can we? Because it's God's creation, and we can't mess it up. And I find it fascinating that he let a bunch of flawed humans run the church, but that was his plan from the very beginning. And it's an amazing thing when you really know about it. And people are still coming, and a lot of times they come because of that community. And we must understand that this was always God's plan, not ours. And although we have through history tried to make it sometimes more about us and maybe power or our preferences or our control over things rather than God's, He still gives us a lot of leeway and opportunity in running with His plan. So what essentials do we see in that early first century church that we maybe need to look at today and say, are we still practicing those things? Have we possibly developed some blind spots from those essentials in that early church model? Well, the best way to do that is to go back to the Bible and look at the book of Acts. So we've got in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are Gospels, eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life written from four different perspectives. And then we have Acts, which is written about the beginning of the church after Jesus has died, has resurrected, and has ascended, and given the Great Commission. And he goes, go do it. Go start my bride, the church. And so we read about how in that early stage is how it all got started. And so we're going to read from Acts. And the book of Acts is written by Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke, because he was a part of that early church and those early missionary journeys. And so the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to say, you need to write down everything that you've experienced in that early church so that 20 centuries later or more, everybody will be able to know how the church got developed and what they did. So we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And this is what Dr. Luke writes. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now when I read that, there's a part of me that wants to go, no way. No way was that group of people did they have everything in common? Have you ever been around a, a group of people that had everything in common? I mean, just go to a family reunion and boom, that's exploded, right? You know? But the, what was going on there was this was the very earliest stage of the church. Right after Jesus, right after the Holy Spirit had come upon those apostles on the day of Pentecost, just a chapter in this same chapter, chapter earlier. So we know it was in the very early stages and there was a, a purity of it that we need to always go back and look at. So we're going to look at those four things. You may have caught it in that first verse, but these are the four things that those folks practice in the early church that we need to look and see if maybe we have some blind spots to those today. If you picked it up, it was the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, 
which can include the sharing of meals, but also the sharing of the Lord's Supper and to prayer. Those four things, they were devoted to those things. And some of you may go, well, Craig, we're doing pretty good. So if 20 centuries later, we're still doing that. We're still reading the apostles' teaching. We're still having fellowship, breaking of bread and the Lord's Supper and prayer. But maybe our blind spot is in this word devoted. Are we really devoted to those four things like they were? So there's a Greek word for that word devoted here, proskar tereo. I just like to say those words sometimes. I have this app and you can click it and this guy tells you how it sounds, you know. So I just kind of like doing that every now and then. But proskar tereo sounds really important. It's an action word. It means they continually devoted themselves to these four things. Not like, well, we did it just so we could be initiated into the club, and then we don't really do that anymore. We don't practice anymore. No, they devoted themselves after they became a Christian, and they continued. It was a daily part of their lives. It said they met daily in the temple courts. They got together in one another's homes. They were devoted, these things, made them a part of their everyday life. And these four things became a part of all those Jesus followers in the early church. And as a result, you probably heard it as I read, the Lord added to their number what? Daily. Daily. The church was growing numerically, but also spiritually, people were growing and maturing in Christ. So how devoted, as you read those and hear those four things, how devoted are you and I to those things really in our lives and in the church? So listen, please hear me today. My intention is not to make people feel guilty about stuff you're not doing. Do y'all get enough of that in your life? And one more thing you need to be saddled with that you're not doing. That's not my intention today. But my intention is, is that if we would see these things and we can develop them in our life, they are meant and they are given for us to enrich our lives. They really are, those four things. God wants us to do those because they sincerely enrich our lives. And maybe we're focused on things other than those four things because we're focused on things that really don't enrich our lives. And it's easy to get caught up in those things. So when I know I have a blind spot in my, in my car or truck, and let's say I'm in behind somebody that is going too slow for me, you know that feeling. And so I'm looking at my ears, and I know there's a, in my mirrors, I know there's a truck there. I'm not sure where he is because all of a sudden it's in a blind spot. I have to make a decision. Do I wait and make sure it comes out of my blind spot and into my mirror, or do I just take a chance because I'm so frustrated I want to get over that I just go ahead? Now, if I do, that can be risky and destructive if I make a wrong decision, not knowing what's in my blind spot. But if I wait and see where he is, then I can make the move. Or I can just stay right where I am, and I'm safe in this lane, but I'm mad because this person's not going fast enough, and I've got to stay in the safe lane because I can't see. Well, life and our spiritual life, I believe, is just like that. If we don't adjust to see where our blind spot is, we can make a destructive or tragic move if we don't really know where we're going. Or we can just stay stuck right where we are, afraid to get out of the, the slow lane or this lane that's safe here. I can't see whether to go there or there, but I'm just going to stay right here because it's safe. And that may be our blind spot, just staying where it's safe, not getting out of our comfort zone. So when we look at these four practices, being devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer, let's look at these and kind of do a little bit of a, 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 an introspective look at, at how we look at these things in our own lives, in our own church here. So the apostles' teaching was exactly that in the first century. That teaching was inspired and was carefully guided by the Holy Spirit. 
part of that teaching was certainly Old Testament Scripture because when we read the New Testament, Jesus certainly refers to the Old Testament Scriptures. Peter and Paul and all the apostles, there's parts of the Old Testament Scriptures in all of their letters, so we know that was an important part of what they taught and what they could actually read. But in this early church we're reading about in Acts chapter 2, y'all, there was no Gospels yet. There was no Matthew, Mark, and Luke written yet. There was no letter to the Corinthians yet. There was no letter to the Thessalonians yet. That would probably not come for another 30, 40, 50, 60 years that these letters would be written and distributed throughout the early church. So how did they know about the apostles' teaching? By oral teaching. You know what that means? You've heard your grandmother, your grandfather tell a story over and over again. You say, hey, tell me that story again. Hey, tell the story about. And that's how you learn about family stuff, right? Because they tell the story over. So these apostles, inspired by the Holy Spirit, were telling Jesus' teachings for those three years they were with Jesus. They were telling about the parables. They were telling about these different healings and all these things that happened. And people were locked into the apostles. They were amazed at who Jesus was and what he talked about. And then they heard it, and they passed it on. As they went to work, as they had people in their house and had these meals together, they go, you know that story that Peter talked about, that parable of the lost son? What did y'all think about that today when we were in the temple? Did you understand what he meant by that? Do you think God's really like that? He just would welcome you home when you went out and spent all the money? So there was this discussion because of the oral teaching that they heard about this teaching of Jesus. And they talked about, how does this affect me in my everyday practical life? And that's what we need to ask. How do the scriptures affect me in my everyday practical life? Because that's what it's for. It's not just something we read as history. No, it has application to us. How is our devotion to the teaching of the apostles, the Bible? And we are in an age where we have access to the Bible, at least in this country, amazingly, don't we? I mean, you can go to Amazon right now and you can get a Bible sent to your house tomorrow, right? I mean, it's that easy. And most of you have a Bible app on your phone, right? It's that easy. I have it. It's amazing. And I have that Bible app. But when I think about the early church and being devoted, if you ask me to give a, I don't know, how many times you go to the Bible app versus how many times you go to the ESPN app, I'm not going to answer that. But you know what I'm talking about. We get distracted. We're not devoted because we're devoted to other things that take, other, take up our time. In a recent survey, church leaders were asked, if you could snap your fingers and instill a single habit in every member of your congregation, what practice would be the most transformative thing for you and your church? And the most common answer was, from all these different ministers and pastors was, that people would spend regular time reading and studying their Bible throughout the week. And the findings are backed up by another survey that was done by another group called the Center for Bible Engagement, Power for Effect. And researchers surveyed more than 400,000 people in the world, all over the world. And they found that the life of someone who engages in Scripture four times or more a week looks radically different from someone who does not. Think about that for a minute. People that take four times a week to look at Scripture and read it and think about it and process it have a radically different life, or at least they look at life differently than someone who doesn't. And not surprisingly, Christians who are not actively engaged with the Bible and know what it says and know what it's about tend to live more like they're really non-Christians. 
because we're not engaged in it. We're not devoted. Now, we also know that in this, our age here, 54% surveys tell us 54% of Generation Z and 44% of millennials reported they prefer interacting with the Bible in digital formats such as the Bible app, website, audio Bible. And that's fine, but at least do it, right? Now, y'all know this. You can, you can set these things to tell you you need to read your Bible today, right? And then you can set it where you can have, do you want other people looking if see if you did it or not? And I always push no on that one. I don't want people to know if the preacher's not reading this Bible. <laughs> but you can do all that. It's right here. It's so easy. So there's really no excuse in us not being engaged and devoted to the apostles' teaching to what God wants to hear us. Whatever our preference, we certainly need to access God's Word and make it a part of our daily lives and be reasonable. If you're hearing me today, you're like, oh, there's one more thing I need to do. But just start simple. You don't go from the couch to a marathon, do you? You go to for the couch to walking around the block and then maybe do a 5K and then maybe a 10K and then maybe we'll do a marathon down the road. But start simple. Read the book of James, a very short practical book in the New Testament that could get you thinking and thinking about how the Scripture applies to your life. Read the book of Mark. It's the shortest of all four Gospels, only 16 chapters. Start there. Start reading about the life of Jesus. And if you can just do one chapter a day or a certain number of verses, read a psalm every day. Start somewhere simple, but just start making it a part of your life. So the next thing he talked about was the apostles, and the next thing was to the fellowship. And then here's another one of these cool-sounding words. In the Greek, it was koinonia. Isn't that a cool sounding word? Koinonia. It meant fellowship, association, community, communion, joint participation, interaction with people. That's what fellowship is. And it can't be done alone. You can't do fellowship by yourself. It requires people in our life. God created you and I to need people in our life. We need each other, don't we? We need the church. We need each other. We can't be disciples by ourselves in some kind of a, uh, you know, a, a bubble or something. You have to do it with other people. And certainly we can practice spiritual disciplines on our own, but sharing and listening to others and joint participation in community is a critical part, y'all, of our spiritual growth. When I read a passage just because I'm the preacher does not mean it has any more meaning than you. I need to sit down with you and you and you, and we need to sit down and say, hey, when you read that passage, what did you think? And all of a sudden, your perspective from your life and your season of life will say, I never thought of it like that. And then the girl over there said this, and like, because of her story, I like, I never thought of it like that. And that's the beauty of God's word and the community coming together and go, me too. You got that too? And that's what he wants us to do in joint participation, and we encourage and challenge each other, and in the process also can be encouraged and challenged ourselves. Interesting survey. In 2021, Barna did a survey, and it was revealed that 56% of confessing Christians view their spiritual life as completely private. Think about that for a minute. My spiritual life is completely private. Now, when I read the New Testament, that is not true. Did Jesus say, hey, y'all go out and make your spiritual life completely private? Did he ever say that in the Gospels? No, because we need one another to hold us accountable to come together in our spiritual life. In a morning consult, poll found that more than half of U.S. adults, to some degree, feel loneliness 
while young adults are twice as likely than senior adults to feel lonely. So we say, my spiritual life is completely private, but I'm struggling with loneliness. What does that say? There's a disconnect from what God intended and what's happening in our world. We're lonely and we're disconnected. Now, we can go on Facebook and we can go on all these social media things and we can present all these things, but apparently that's not really who we are. And face-to-face in community, you find out who I really am, right? And that's what God intends us to do. I'm not saying social media platforms are bad. There's a lot of good ones out there, but we get distracted by those things. And people try to embark on their spiritual journey alone, but despite their loneliness, they reject church involvement beyond Sunday morning attendance. Did you hear what I said? Beyond Sunday morning attendance. Now, you know what? I can go for years and say, hey, how are you doing? And you can say back, fine, how are you? And I say, fine. I can do that for literally years and go to the same church and not know anything about you. Isn't that true? Right now you're thinking, yeah, you know, I know so-and-so, and I've said that uh, 10 years, and I don't know anything about it. Never been in their homes to have a meeting. Never been in a Bible study with them. Never been on a trip with them. Yesterday we had a work day over at our, our new property over here in our building, and there was some folks there, and I'm finding things about these folks that I never knew before. Why? Because we came together for community for a common purpose. And all of a sudden, I go, I didn't know that about you. And we're talking, and we accomplished something together. And we walked away, and we saw each other this morning. We go, yep, we were there. We had community together. And I know you a little bit better. That's what he's talking about. That's what was happening in this early uh, church. Susan Phillips writes about the importance of maintaining friendships, real authentic friendships. There's an Australian palliative care nurse named Bronnie Ware who works with people, she writes about this in her book, who have chosen to die in their own homes, you know, hospice care. And she's asked her patients along the years, she says, what are the regrets you have as you approach your death? And this is what she said that one of the top five consistent answers was, letting friendships lapse. Letting friendships lapse lapse. Ware writes that many of her patients have become so caught up in their own lives that they let golden relationships slip by over the years. There were many deep regrets about not giving friendships the time and effort they deserved. Everyone misses their friends when they're dying. People regret the loss of friendship, yet our, cl- our culture offers little instruction about maintaining friendships. Doing so is a spiritual discipline. Phillips presents a view of friendship as a discipline and offers practical suggestions about how you cultivate that. Now think about that for a minute. I have never in my life heard that friendship and developing friendships is a spiritual discipline. When you think of spiritual discipline, like prayer, Bible reading, you know, the Jesus answers, the Sunday school answers. But developing your friendships is a spiritual discipline. It is. Jesus developed friendships with the disciples. When we read the Bible, it's about friendships and family. People had to develop those. Paul, in all those missionary journeys, and all those churches he started, he had to develop friendships with those people. That's why when he wrote those letters, he said, Dear friends, and all these beloved, all these things, because they were friends. They were authentic friends, and he missed them, and he wanted to know how they were doing. And it seems it was early In that early church, it was a priority for people. So what do you think about friendship being a spiritual discipline? Do you really work on your friendships and maintaining those? 
And here's something you got to do to have fellowship with other people. You got to put yourself out there, don't you? And that's hard sometimes. It's like, I don't want to go to the, I don't, here's what we say. I don't know any of those people in that group. You know you've said it, or you've thought it. I don't know any of those people. I've said it. But when we finally go, and all right, I'll go, and we know somebody there, and we go, and all of a sudden we go, that was pretty fun. There's some cool people in that group. There's some weird people in that group too, but so am I. I fit in just fine. And that's the church. It's like our family. You don't get to choose them. They're just here. They're a part of us. But you got to put yourself out there. And the observation that I have made along with others on our staff is how encouraging, encouraging it is to us to have new people not just attend on Sunday morning, but to take the next step to another part of fellowship in our church. Like, I'm going to start going to Sunday school. I'm going to go to lunch and learn. I'm going to start, our kids are going to start going to the youth group. Hey, we're going to go to Jonathan's thing after lunch today. Hey, I'm going to go to that retreat. Hey, I'm going to go on that mission trip. And when people go and do these things, they almost always come back and go, man, I'm glad I did that. I met some really neat people because they put their self out there. And you don't have to participate in all these things. The last thing a lot of y'all need in your life is a whole bunch of stuff you have to do at church. Please don't hear me saying that. That's not what I'm saying. But pick something and say, I'm going to take the next step in trying to get to know people and fellowship. Actively engage in whatever fellowship requires. One of the greatest things we've done over the last few years here at this church was an idea that my wife got from her grandmother's church years ago called Supper Club. We were like, what a separate club. But she had the idea. And then Laura Griffey's one of our sweet ladies, has put that together. And could I just see by a show of hands, how many of y'all have participated in that? Just throw your hands up. Okay? And I have not had any of these people say, that was the worst experience. I will never do that again. People come back and go, that was great. I got to be in so-and-so's home. Did you know that they blah, blah, blah? And while you're eating a meal together, you go, this is fantastic. Where did you get this recipe? Well, it was actually from my grandmother. And then you start talking about your family. And by the time you leave that house, you know a whole lot about two other families or people that you never knew about before. And then the next month, you get to go to their house. And the next month, you get to go to the other house. You see how that works? It's fellowship. It's part of what was going on in the early church. And we find that those things really connect us together. And then he said, be devoted to the breaking of bread, sharing of meals. And and I believe through the years of looking at these scriptures in here that it also meant the Lord's Supper. They were sharing meals. The breaking of bread is a term that usually involves sharing meals together. Having meals together together in every culture throughout history is just human practice, isn't it? No matter what culture, people get together. And I promise you today, if you go home and watch the Braves game, between innings there will be commercials, and there will be at least several commercials about people getting together to eat meals, won't there? And they're telling you that if you use this product and get together, your friendships will be deeper. By drinking Coke together or an adult beverage, whatever it is, you know? That's what we'll do. But it's true. Everybody understands people coming together and to eat. Because when we come together to eat, we have to eat to live, don't we, physically? But guess what? In God's Word, it tells us not only do you come together to eat because you need food physically, spiritually, you need communion with other people. You need that interaction, conversation. And we see that throughout the whole Bible, people coming together for meals. In the Old Testament, there were all these festivals, and they went on for days. And eating was always a huge part of all those festivals for days because people sat around and ate and talked about the food and realized where it came from and who fixed it, and it just carried the conversations. 
And Jesus in the Gospels ate with people. There's so many instances in the Gospels where Jesus went to somebody's house and ate. Remember when Matthew was a tax collector and he went to his house and had a party and people were going, he can't do that. And Jesus goes, but I did it. Matthew knows now that I care about him and that I love him because I went to his house and I ate with him. And remember the day the wee little man named Zacchaeus, he says, I'm going to your house today. And he had a meal with Zacchaeus, and they talked about life, and they ate together, and they figured things out. And then probably the the one we remember most is the Last Supper, the meal that Jesus had on that Passover night with his disciples before he went to the cross. And he said, I eagerly desire to eat this final supper with you, my closest friends. I want you to be around as I eat my Last Supper. And Jesus had that Last Supper together, and he ate with those in that in that last supper, and he, um, during that meal, he had much to say to his disciples during that very intimate time about what was getting ready to happen and what would happen after his death. And that's so important. And so eating a meal together, coming together. And this breaking of bread also refers to communion. And that's what Jesus did. He instituted, he established with his disciples on that special night. You can read about that in Luke 22 or 1 Corinthians 11. It says, Jesus took bread... And he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. And it wasn't like a loaf of bread. It was, you know, it was that bread that was flat. It was unleavened bread. And he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and they took it. And he said, take, eat, this is my what? This is my body, which will be given to you. And they didn't really understand. And then after that, it said he took the cup of wine, and he says, this is the cup. This is the new covenant of my blood, which will be poured out for you tomorrow. And they're going around drinking and going, what is he talking about? They didn't realize, but he was establishing from the old covenant a new covenant in his blood. And that's where this breaking of bread in the early church, they also ate meals, but they also took time to take communion, the Lord's Supper, together. And we do that every week here. It reminds us of something that we all have in common. You know what that is, y'all? We need a Savior. All of us need a Savior. We are all lost in our sin without Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. All of us. We have that in common. We all have that. And so taking communion together reminds us that God so loved all of us. And he gave his only son to save us from our sins through that death on the cross. And he has given us eternal life together through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then the fourth thing is prayer. I know y'all are going, it's going on and on. And the Greek word in prayer, it means prayer is directly with God, not God's. We're not just going to pray to a bunch of them and hope it comes out. No, there's one creator and one God, and we pray to him. And we ask him because he's the creator. And I like to pray with this anacronym, if you will, ACTS. And I've shared this with some of y'all before, A-C-T-S. A stands for adoration or praise. C is, so I praise God for what he is, who he is in my prayer at some point. And then the next one is confession. I confess in my prayer my sins that I've hurt other people, that I've done things to hurt other people, hurt myself, to put God as not the priority. And then T is thanksgiving. God, thank you for all the good things that you've provided in my life. And then the last one is S, supplication or petition. That means I'm requesting some things specifically for my life, but also I'm requesting things for other people in my life. And prayer is not limited to just about health-related issues, is it? Or when we have an issue. God wants us to pray on a regular basis. And they were continually devoted to prayer. Not just at certain times when something bad was happening. Oh, God, come help us. 
No, every day we're talking conversation with God. And though I don't have a survey for this like the Bible survey, but I bet if you took a survey of 400,000 people like they did with the Bible and they said, how many of y'all are engaged every day consistently in prayer? Those people's outlook on life would be very different than those who never engage in prayer. Wouldn't you agree with me on that? We need to talk to our Heavenly Father. The early church prayed together. And hearing other prayers is a powerful thing. Every Monday in our staff meeting, we go around and all of our staff prays. And we, we, we have a time of prayer requests beginning. And we all hear the same request. But to hear other people in a group praying for the same things is a powerful thing, isn't it? And you know what? We're praying. We're praying for mostly about y'all and the things that y'all tell us. Please pray for me. And doing that together is a powerful thing. So as I close today, it's important for us to understand. I got this from a guy named Matt Skinner. He says, it's important for us to understand in that passage we just read, these were not extraordinarily different people than you and me, but what they had in that early church was one thing that we have access to, and that's the Holy Spirit, isn't it? The Holy Spirit came upon them on the day of Pentecost. And when they decided to truly and authentically be a follower of Jesus, the virtues of justice and worship and mutuality are not accomplishments that they can do on their own, but through the Holy Spirit, they can do those things. They are signs of the Spirit within a community of people who understand themselves as united in purpose and identity. Not just a dispersed collection of individual churchgoers. No, we're united in Christ. And the, re- the audacious claims of a resurrection faith demand for us to come together and do life together. So where do you and I maybe need to start in those four areas? Is there one that maybe you have a blind spot to? Will you commit today to seeking out a place of connection in the church? If maybe you haven't done that yet, you know, I really need to get involved. Maybe a small group, maybe just go on a trip. Pick that out and do something that stretches you beyond your comfort zone. And we would love to help you do that. Well, we're getting ready to um, go into a time of communion, as we do every week. If you're here today for the first time and you're um, not a member of our church, that doesn't matter. If you're a believer in Christ and you want to participate in communion today, remembering what Jesus has done for you, we offer that opportunity to you and it will be passed to you. We're asking y'all to please take the cups and they'll... um, Put them in those little holders afterwards. Don't put it back in the tray because when you put it back in the tray, somebody might think that it's a full one and then they would drink it. So just keep that and put it on your thing. We'll collect those later. But as the trays come, we ask you to do that.